0: Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of deals, mergers, and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Thanks for listening, as always. So Sprint and T-Mobile, our Deal of the Week this week. Yes, a deal that has been discussed for, oh, about five years now, may finally be weeks away from an announcement. It would be the largest deal of the year if it actually happens. Sprint with an enterprise value of about $65 billion, and T-Mobile with an enterprise value of about $81 billion. Uh, These two companies combining, merging, in essence, in a stock-for-stock merger, as we've been reporting on fairly diligently over the past week or two. Joining me this week, I don't know anyone who's more qualified to speak to this merger than my guest. He's a longtime telecom analyst, and he knows these two companies inside and out. Really, he knows the entire wireless industry like few others. He's Craig Moffitt, telecom analyst at the eponymous Moffitt Nathanson, his own research firm that he co-founded a few years ago. And it's always a pleasure to speak with him. Hi, Craig. Good morning, Alex. Good to talk to you. Thank you. So let's, let's get real basic here. Everyone probably knows the company Sprint and T-Mobile. Why is this deal seemingly on the verge of finally happening?
1: Well, the owner of Sprint, I uh, remember Sprint a few years back was was mostly acquired by a company called SoftBank in Japan. The a Japanese owner, wireless uh, company. Japanese wireless technology. Com- and, and technology right. company. And it's been SoftBank's vision to merge Sprint and T-Mobile from the very beginning. And, and even T-Mobile has said for their part, that ultimately having more scale and and being scaled similarly to Verizon and AT and T has to be the real end game for for their competitive position. So you said five years; it has literally been five years that not only people have been speculating about this merger, but people have been fully expecting this merger. Um, the companies thought about it, talked about it, and came reasonably close end of 2013, early 2014. And at the time, we said, "Look, it's not going to happen." Now, but it's inevitable that they will try in the next administration, whether it's a Republican administration or a Democrat administration, that it was inevitably going to try. So there's I guess the main headline here is there is no surprise whatsoever in the idea that these companies are seriously talking about merging.
0: Give us a sense of the states of these two businesses. So, you know, seemingly everybody has a wireless plan these days, but there's so much capital expenditure that goes into wireless companies. How are these two companies doing? Well, let's let's start at the industry
1: level. The industry is not terribly healthy, right? I mean, this is an industry that people for years thought of as a go-go growth industry. And, and I should just, say
0: that the industry really is AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, and T-Mobile, right? Yeah, that's, that's the
1: basically those four players. And, and it's not a terribly healthy industry um, because it's not a growth industry anymore. You know, the years of wireless as a real growth engine of the economy – um, at least from the carrier's perspective, are over. Wireless, and this is true in Europe, by the way, as well, most of the developed world, wireless is already ubiquitous. And as the cycle of penetration of new new people getting new smartphones has, has effectively slowed to the growth rate of the population, the growth engine of the business has died. These, this industry has promised that more and more and more wireless usage from each of us is going to translate into more and more revenue, and that really hasn't panned out. And so what you're left with is an industry stuck in a price war. So that's the industry backdrop. Against that backdrop, you've got two companies that are going in pretty different directions, right? Sprint has been struggling for years, for years. They they merged in 2006 with a company called Nextel, and arguably, here we are 11 years later, they're still struggling to, to get past the, the challenges that were created by what, in retrospect, was a bad merger. Too much debt, not enough money to be able to invest in the network, a weak brand. Um, their numbers have improved pretty dramatically, but I hate to say it, the, large, the biggest reason their numbers have improved dramatically is they've changed their accounting. Absent the accounting changes for the way they account for phones, the business is still really, really struggling. They've done a very good job cutting costs, but the industry has been in a downward spiral of pricing. And so the net-net is you've got a shrinking pie um, for Sprint with uh, with what looked like improving uh, an improving cost structure but falling prices and so they've basically been treading water and getting smaller and smaller and smaller over time. T-Mobile's going in the opposite direction. T-Mobile has gone from strength to strength. T-Mobile in 2011 was a, a, there was an attempted acquisition by AT&T that failed. They walked away with cash and a bunch of Spectrum, and uh, and it's been lights out ever since. That they was the been, breakup
0: fee for that deal failing.
1: Huge breakup fee and a bunch of Spectrum as part of the breakup and, fee. And
0: by the way, that deal failing is sort of what kicked off the talks of Sprint well, and and, and right?
1: That's right. And we'll talk about that deal failing, because that deal failing has some important implications for Sprint and T-Mobile. But the bottom line is T-Mobile, ever since 2011, has been getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Now, there's there may be some hints around the... Edge edges that the run that T-Mobile is on is starting to wind down. And that could be one reason why their corporate parent, Deutsche Telekom, is getting more interested in in getting the deal done now. But bottom line is they are strong and Sprint is weak. And you see that in what's been talked about in exchange ratios.
0: So the big, big question around this deal, even if it is in fact announced in a few weeks, is the regulatory question. And that's where we get into the discussion with AT&T and T-Mobile. That deal was effectively blocked by U.S. regulators that said, At the time, we are taking this industry from four major players to three, and therefore we feel like that does not pass the antitrust uh, concerns that we have. There would be too much consolidation in this industry. We're not allowing this deal. Regulators said the same thing to SoftBank and T-Mobile back in 2013, 2014. Don't even bother trying. You're still going four to three. The logic remains the same. What has potentially happened in the last five years, four years, three years— That The thinking on that is no longer the case.
1: Donald Trump was elected president. Plain and simple. That's all that has changed. And and remember um, that while a Republican administration is almost certainly going to be more receptive to a merger than a Democrat administration would have been, you still have largely the same staffers filling the seats at the Department of Justice – A lot of the staffers who were actually behind the messaging, that made it so clear, we want four, not three. So let's go back in a little bit of history now on that T-Mobile-AT&T merger that I mentioned back in 2011. There, the signal from the Department of Justice, um, the the DOJ filed to block that deal in, in August of 2011. The FCC followed uh, with their recommendation not to approve the deal. That's an important semantic difference in the way the FCC and the DOJ work. But the DOJ filed to block that deal in August uh, of of 2011 and couldn't have been clearer. They said over and over again in their complaint that we need four, not three. Um, The FCC then echoed that same sentiment in December of 2013 and said, we need four, not three. That sets a very high hurdle for this merger, and not only because of the precedent that it sets, but look what's happened since. You know, In order to try to get that deal done, T-Mobile and AT&T predictably said at the time, T-Mobile can't really survive as a standalone player, so you have to let them merge with AT&T. The government didn't buy that argument, and now in retrospect, the, go- the government was proven emphatically correct. Because T-Mobile not only has survived, they have thrived far more successful than Verizon, AT&T, or Sprint in the intervening six years. And so that sort of preemptively counters what is almost certainly going to be the argument from these two companies that says, well, we can't survive on our own. We need to be allowed to merge. The DOJ and the FCC are going to look and say, well, we heard that 6 years ago and look what happened and and that makes it much harder for them to to get a deal across Does The Sprint
0: line. potentially provide a counter argument to that by saying, well look, w- you know, we did poorly. Well, so, you, it, know, we're, we're... <laughs> you know, th-
1: no well so the funny thing is um is Sprint's been in this weird situation, right? If Sprint were very close to bankruptcy now, they could make a pretty good argument that we can't survive. Um ironically, 3 4 years ago, Sprint's bonds were trading with an implied probability of bankruptcy of almost 90%. Now, the bonds trade with an implied probability of almost 0%. Oddly enough, nothing has happened other than that Sprint, other than changing its accounting, has gotten a number of other lines of credit that have allowed it to just take on more debt, um, which has certainly provided it with sufficient liquidity, but you can't get your way out of debt by borrowing more money. Um, but, it, but ironically, the stock price has done pretty well over the last few years. It's been weak more recently and, and had a weak year this year. But but it's, the stock price has done quite well over the last few years, and the bonds have done quite well over the last few years. And, and the government is almost certainly going to look at that and say, the judgment of Wall Street is your company
0: is perfectly capable of surviving on its own, whether that's true or not. So- The general argument for why you need four, not three in any industry would be there's more competition and therefore there's more likelihood that prices uh, will be better for consumers and there will be more implicit – competition uh, or, or explicit competition between the companies, and then that will be an ultimate benefit for, for consumers. What will be the T-Mobile Sprint argument from a consumer benefit standpoint about why these companies should merge and why we're okay, if not better off, with three instead of four?
1: Plain, plain and simple. It's going to be that the ante of investment That is, how much money you have to put in to have a truly competitive wireless network over the next 10 years is going to have to step up, and that the two companies simply can't be anywhere near as competitive independently as they could be together. So their argument will be very clear. It will be, we provide a much stronger counterbalance to Verizon and AT&T together than we do separately.
0: What does that mean, though, from a consumer benefit standpoint? In other words, are they saying our network will be much faster if we combine, our prices will be lower? Like, what? what is the consumer benefit? Uh,
1: I suspect more the former than the latter. Um, now, the DOJ may force the companies to commit to some pricing concessions if, in fact, they do decide to approve the deal at all. Um, but mostly, I think, the going-in argument from Sprint and T-Mobile— will be we can provide a network like no network you ever saw if we're allowed to, to work together. And by the way, I think that's going to be the argument not just for regulators, but also that's going to be the argument for politicians in the court of public opinion. You know, Back when, when in the very early days of the administration, uh, Masasan, the, the leader of, of SoftBank, visited Trump Tower in a very widely publicized visit, and there were lots of pictures of of uh, Massa and, and Donald Trump taken together in the lobby. You can sort of imagine what Donald Trump's um, speech would be, whether he decides to support it or oppose it. The speech supporting it would be this is a, a company that is going to massively invest in new technology in the United States and build a 5G network that will enable all kinds of job creation and lots of of great things for our economy and unleash innovation and, and what have you. The counter-argument is here's a Japanese company and a German company that want to merge in order to lay off American workers. Um, people are scratching their heads over saying which of those two narratives will be the one that the White House chooses. Um, a lot of people are speculating it will be the former narrative rather than the latter narrative, simply because of the personal relationship that that Donald Trump seems to have formed with Masayoshi Son.
0: Let's talk about this idea of this 5G network. I, I have no idea if Donald Trump even knows what a 5G network is or not at this point. He probably will know soon, if he doesn't know already. Uh, help us explain, Craig, when we talk about 5G, what practically does that mean?
1: It's a good question. Um, I don't think the industry entirely knows yet. Um, 5G is really a basket for what in reality are three entirely separate things. 5G is a basket of technologies. So um, the, the equipment, if you will, made by companies like Ericsson, in the next generation. That's so think of it, think of the evolution of the cable industry as it used to be analog or what you used to call amps. And then we went up to 2G and 3G, and, and now we're on 4G, which is another name for LTE. And now the next generation will be 5G. That's really sort of thinking about it from
0: an equipment right. perspective. If you look at your phone in the upper left-hand corner, you see the 4G or yeah, LTE, exa- that exactly. will be 5G in five years or 10 that's years. Right. Or that's right. That's that's the equipment definition. There's also a
1: definition that, that relates to what spectrum bands. Um, that will be used for the new technologies. And the expectation is those spectrum bands will be very high frequency spectrum, um, what in the industry is referred to as millimeter wave, Uh, much, much higher frequency, and very high frequencies tend to propagate over very short distances. So you're going to have a super dense network with lots and lots of electronics and what have you. The third definition of 5G is a use case. And it's that one that Usually gets the banner of IoT or Internet of Things, which is the this umbrella for everything you can think of is going to be connected to the wireless network somehow. Um, that's the one that's the squishiest because no one really knows whether there's any revenue in any of that. You know, it's it's cool to say. Well, my refrigerator is going to be connected to the internet and tell me when I'm out of milk, and that may well be true. But it's not clear that that's going to make any money for Sprint, T-Mobile, Verizon, or AT and T, or whether it's just going to go over your broadband network and and it's essentially costless and revenueless. Driverless cars are another example that gets used a lot. You know, driverless cars, I'm sure, will be a real thing. The prospect that you would actually, from a safety perspective, allow the wireless network to be a gating factor for for driverless cars is almost unthinkable, right? I mean, what, your car's going to crash as soon as you go into a dead zone? So so realistically, or it's, it, I would say it's not clear whether even, even driverless cars have any real revenue model for the wireless carriers. Um, and so people are scratching their heads over whether there's anything there there. Sprint T-Mobile's version of 5G will probably be a hybrid. 5G equipment, but very likely using a spectrum that used to be considered very high frequency, but is now considered sort of midband, which in some ways is kind of the crown jewel of what Sprint has. Sprint has a lot of spectrum that is 2.5 gigahertz, which again... Four or five years ago, people thought that's so high frequency, it's it's hard to think of how to use it. And now that we're talking about frequency bands that are 10 times higher than that, it doesn't sound so high anymore. And now people are saying, wait, there's real value in that. And and that's likely to become the foundation of, of what a combined Sprint T-Mobile would leverage to make something different.
0: What type of pricing power do these companies have? Because wireless, at least at this stage, is not technically treat it as a utility. But as in any case where sort of everybody has it, even in a world where there's just three companies, you'd imagine that these companies only have so much run rate to say, hey, look, we're, we're all going to jack up your cost, 10, 20, 30 percent. Look, it's a like great this.
1: question. I mean, at the, at, the, at the heart of your question is really, are these services differentiable anymore? You know, if I went back to before 2011 not coincidentally, before the time that, that AT&T and T-Mobile tried to merge. There were really three dimensions of competition in the wireless industry. Wireless operators competed on the quality of their network, they competed on the on the on their handset selection, and they competed on price. Handset selection is an interesting one, right? It wasn't that long ago that the iPhone was exclusive to AT&T, that Verizon had put all its eggs in the basket of the Motorola Droid series, the the Google Nexus phone, it's very early, uh, the first phone it made was exclusive to T-Mobile, and that and seems so long ago. It, and it seems it, really it seems like light yeah. years ago. And yeah. and Sprint had the Palm Pre, which was based on the old Palm platform, and the and each one had their own set of handsets. So if you wanted an iPhone, you went to AT and T. If you wanted a Droid, you went to Verizon. Um, and in a funny way, that actually helped the companies. Everybody felt like we're at a disadvantage because we don't have the iPhone. Um, but it actually helped preserve the industry's margins in, in that it kept it from being a commodity free-for-all. Once the iPhone went non-exclusive, and Samsung had always been non-exclusive, but Samsung didn't matter yet. Over Over a period of years, Motorola fell away, Nokia fell away, BlackBerry, all of the the alternative phone manufacturers fell away, and you were left with two phones that everybody carried, the iPhone and the Samsung. And suddenly, the entire basis of differentiation based on handset selection had disappeared. You were left with, we compete on price and network. And by the way, network differentiation had gotten to be less and less and less. It, w- it used to be simple of Verizon's got the best network and everybody else doesn't. Then it became, well, T-Mobile maybe has the fastest network, but Verizon has the best coverage, which is good for voice, but not so great. for It doesn't matter as much for data, but blah, 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 blah. And it got to be much harder to say. And so what you were left with was price, price, and price. It's not clear that there is anything on the horizon that's going to change that and that, that, that keeps this from being an intensely price-competitive industry. Even, by the way, if we only have three players, um, if, if we go from four to three, does anybody really think that, that, therefore, price competition in the industry will disappear?
0: Is there a reason this deal has to happen now? Because I certainly, as I've uh, listened to analysts and spoken to people that have sort of been intimately familiar with the deal, there has been a certain camp that has uh, said made the argument that, that Deutsche Telekom, T-Mobile... Doesn't necessarily need to do this deal now because they're actually performing quite well, and so why, why try merging with Sprint? That's clearly, uh, you know, in not as good of a position. Maybe they could wait a year and get Sprint at a lower price. Is there some political reason or other reason that this deal should happen now?
1: It, it, it's a great question. Um, I, I, it, ultimately, the backdrop is the political backdrop, right? Is is you have to try to do this. During a, a, a Republican administration um, we thought they were going to try it whether it was a Democrat or a Republican administration but your odds are so much better under a Republican administration that it's that it's to some extent now or never now now has a few years to it as you said and and waiting a few more years arguably would be better you know t-mobile and it's this has now been reported by you and others that that t-mobile, is is frustrated that they believe Sprint's stock price remains too high relative to its intrinsic value. And by the way, its debt level is also too high relative to its intrinsic value. So there were some arguments that say you should let it go bankrupt first um, and that it's not entirely clear it won't go bankrupt in some years if it doesn't get A merger. Um, It seems like Deutsche Telekom has softened that stance. And and my sense is, reading the Germans from Bonn, that it seems like their view is, look, we've seen this movie before. We participate in lots and lots of global wireless markets. And so we've seen what happens when a company rides a very hot streak like T-Mobile has been riding in the U.S. for the last five years. Um, It always ends— that's not to say it ends badly. It, it doesn't come to a crashing halt and blow up or something. But but companies go through cycles of when they seem like they're on top of the world and everything is going right like T-Mobile has, uh, like it has been for T-Mobile for the last few years, but that this too shall pass and that you want to be careful not to ride this too long and then miss the window when your brand is still ascendant and uh, and you have more negotiating leverage. If if T-Mobile's growth really weakens, their their relative advantage, uh, the negotiating advantage versus Sprint weakens with it, and uh, and so I think that's probably part of that calculation.
0: And I will say one one of the, another one of the arguments that sort of gets at what you're saying is part of the reason that T-Mobile's brand has been so ascendant is that they have been so aggressive on price. I mean, that's one area where this sort of the wireless networks, while maybe technically a commodity you know t- t- I was I switched from Verizon to T-mobile because my bill was like cutting a, a lot of people have. by, by changing uh, now in in the, the thinking there being that T-Mobile can only do that for so long until it sort of catches up with them so let's do that and then merge and then we can sort of although although to be fair later.
1: you could say the same thing about Sprint although you know, Sprint, Sprint's been an even funnier position right because their their prices for their existing subscribers are actually quite high but their marginal prices to try to attract new subscribers are the lowest in the industry and so and that's part of the problem that they've had is this dissonance between the way they treat new customers and old customers and it makes it hard to keep the old ones when you're repricing the new ones and what have you but but i take your point um Ultimately, um, the growth comes from being very, very price competitive. Now, they would argue that there's huge cost reductions, and you can funnel those cost reductions back into sustaining super aggressive prices for a long time. The counter to that argument, by the way, is look what happened last week when news broke that they had finally come to a provisional term sheet. That is in M&A jargon for – they reached the very broad outlines, certainly far from an actual handshake deal, but they reached the very broad outlines of what a deal would look like. Um, we don't know what exactly what was agreed to, but they apparently agreed to the bro- those broad outlines. Um, once that was reported, Verizon's stock price and at and T stock price both rose sharply. Um, don't think that the DOJ isn't going to notice the DOJ is going to say, isn't that interesting that on the day that it was announced that these companies actually are going to merge, Verizon's and at and stock price both rose instead of fell? That tells you that the wisdom of the markets is that these companies are going to charge more, not less, once they're allowed to merge. And therefore, it's good news for their competitors.
0: We mentioned the breakup fee on that AT&T T-Mobile deal, a huge breakup fee and really propelled T-Mobile. One thing we have not reported yet, I just haven't found it out is if there's going to be a breakup fee in this deal and what it might be. Do you expect there to be some sort of breakup fee with this deal? It's
1: it's an unusual situation in that uh, what we've been saying for the last couple of minutes is that T-Mobile has more leverage. Um, T-Mobile, because they have more leverage, is likely to be the one that could require the breakup fee um, and be paid. Even though
0: they're going to technically be the buyer. But, uh,
1: but it's very unusual for a buyer to be paid a breakup fee by the company they are acquiring. And so you have this very strange dynamic where T-Mobile is arguably the one that would get paid even though they're the ones that would end up technically being the buyer because they would have the majority stake in the, in the ending entity.
0: Let's say this deal does in fact go through. What's next in telco M&A land after this one?
1: You know, my suspicion is not much. It, there's been so much smoke. Um, and to be fair, most of that smoke has come from pundits rather than the companies themselves. But there's been so much speculation that who's Verizon going to buy? You know, just AT&T bought Time Warner um, after first buying DirecTV. And so first there was speculation, well, tit for tat, that means Verizon has to buy Dish Network. And Dish Network owns not just a satellite TV business, but a ton of Spectrum. Little by little, I think the market has come to believe that that's not going to happen. Verizon really isn't interested in buying Dish or or its Spectrum. And uh, and I think they've made that pretty clear now. and Dish stocks has sold off quite a bit since Verizon has been more emphatic in saying we're not going to do any big m Then the speculation went to, well, that's because Verizon's going to buy Charter, the cable company. Um, they've now said pretty emphatically, we're not going to buy Charter, the cable company. For a while, Sprint was going to buy Charter, um, but that never made any sense, and so it got traction for about five minutes. It was actually not Sprint, but SoftBank was going to buy Charter and merge it with Sprint. Um, that never made any sense, and so it never really went anywhere. Altice, the French cable company that now owns Cablevision and Suddenlink, two, two smaller cable companies here in the U.S., um, Altice was going to buy charter, although Altice arguably was only going to buy charter because they didn't want SoftBank to get it. And if SoftBank was never going to get it, there was not really all that much logic for why they would buy it. And so that has kind of gone by the wayside. All of these deals suffered from a couple of of obvious problems, the most important of which was strategically there wasn't terribly compelling rationale for any of them. You have to start with, strategically, do they make any sense? Then you have to start with, financially, do they make any sense? You know, In most of these cases, the big buyers were said to be either Verizon or, believe it or not, even before the AT&T deal is done, people are already speculating that someday AT&T might buy Dish Network.
0: And merge it with um,
1: And merge it with DirecTV. Even if you can get to the strategic logic, which I would argue you can't in any of those cases, then you have to get to... Are the balance sheets of these companies strong enough that they can do it? Verizon, AT&T in particular, have a real challenge, right? Because they have a 5% dividend yield, and they also have a lot of leverage. So issuing debt, that is buying something with cash, makes their leverage ratio go up, and that hurts their their credit rating. Um, And they can't afford to risk their credit rating. Most companies faced with that challenge would just issue equity instead and say, well, we'll buy it with stock. But when you're issuing equity that also carries a 5% coupon and is dilutive to earnings, you can't do that either. So the challenge is that it's harder and harder and harder for Verizon and AT&T to make big acquisitions that are big enough to move the needle um, because of their balance sheets. And I would say more broadly, if you zoom out across the, the communications infrastructure companies that is not the not the cable networks of the the Viacoms and Disney's I'll leave that conversation to to media analysts I'm not a media analyst but for the infrastructure distribution side the cable operators the phone companies, With the notable exception of Comcast, which has a very strong balance sheet, most of the balance sheets in these industries, in this industry, is very they're very weak balance sheets, and they just have too much debt, and it really makes it much harder to do M and A than people think. It's it's a fun parlor game to say let's pair these guys with these guys and those guys with those other guys, Um, but most of the numbers don't work because the balance sheets are already so stretched.
0: And maybe coincidentally, maybe not. Comcast, the one company that sort of is a media company there. Well, as
1: well it, as it, company. yeah, and, and AT&T will is increasingly will be becoming soon. a media company, although it's hard to outrun who you were, um, and they still have, you know, here's here's an interesting example. Most people don't pay that much attention to the wireline commercial services business at AT&T. That is providing good old-fashioned wired phone service to businesses and only businesses, not the residential business, not DSL, not that sort of thing. Their commercial wireline business is larger than the entire company of Time Warner. Um, it's a $34 billion company uh, business inside of AT&T. And by the way, it's shrinking at about 5.5% a year as they lose market share to cable operators and, and competitors like Level 3 and what have you. Again, it's a $34 billion business. It's bigger than the, the Turner networks of of TNT and TBS and CNN plus HBO plus Warner Brothers Studio all rolled into one. Um, it's really hard to outrun who you are or who you were, um, and and you can spin it as we're a new age company that is now about communications and the convergence of blah, 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 blah. But fundamentally, you are who you used to be.
0: Right. American telephone. There you (laughs) go. Craig Moffitt, telecom analyst at Moffitt Nathanson. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Hope you learned something from that. Thanks, Craig.
1: My pleasure. Good to be here.
0: So that'll do it for this week's episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed that. You can catch all our episodes on Apple Podcasts or Bloomberg.com or the Bloomberg Terminal or any app you use to listen to podcasts. If you do have a chance, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. Also, if you have uh, an idea for a future show or topic, feel free to email me a sherman6 at bloomberg.net or follow me on Twitter at sherman. Forty-nine, forty-nine. Craig, are you on Twitter? Uh, I am no, we, For compliance reasons, I have to avoid Twitter and that sort of thing. So, if you have any questions for Craig, you
1: can just DM me on Twitter. We do, we do put out very short notices just that we've published something,
0: but we can't really meaningfully communicate through a, a platform like that. Magnus Hendrickson, thank you for producing this episode. See you next week.